Hi everyone, welcome to The Lab Report, a podcast that will show you the inner workings of the clinical lab through discussions, interviews, and stories. Most importantly, you will see what goes on behind the scenes in the clinical lab and how it can impact you. I'm your host, Victoria Higgins, and today I will be talking to Dr. Nicole White-Al-Habib. Dr. White-Al-Habib is a clinical chemist at Life Labs in Toronto, Canada, and she is joining us today to talk about a vitamin called biotin and how it can impact the clinical lab. So thank you for joining us, Dr. White-Al-Habib. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for the invitation here today. So I can probably start by sharing with you a real-life example where biotin had an impact on patient care. So a 44-year-old woman presented to one of the hospitals in Toronto with a number of symptoms. She had a history of fatigue, increased appetite without waking, hair loss, insomnia, anxiety, and occasional heat intolerance. She also showed some neck swelling. So she was examined by her physician, and the physician did suspect thyroid dysfunction and ordered an ultrasound and thyroid function tests. The patient did the testing, and what was reported was that the neck ultrasound was reported as normal. However, there were some concerning results in her thyroid function tests. TSH, or her thyroid-stimulating hormone, was decreased compared to the normal reference interval. Um, both free T3 and free T4, which are the active thyroid hormones, were increased about three times the upper limit of normal. And also TSH receptor bodies, which is a marker of Graves' disease, were also increased. So overall, this patient really showed a biochemical suggestion of hyperthyroidism and more specifically Graves' disease. And Graves' disease is an autoimmune condition where your thyroid is overactive and essentially produces more thyroid hormone than usual. Uh, Graves' disease is associated with numerous symptoms, including anxiety and irritability, heat sensitivity and weight loss, among others, and really quite similar to how this patient presented. One of the treatments for Graves' disease is an antithyroid medication, and this medication interferes with the thyroid's ability to produce thyroid hormones. Based on her biochemical findings and the clinical presentation, the patient was diagnosed with Graves' disease and was prescribed antithyroid medication. Um, She was asked to come back four weeks later for blood work. And as a result of these medications, what we were expected to see was a decrease in the free T3 and free T4, or the thyroid hormones. However, we saw no significant change in any of the thyroid hormones, and they actually showed levels that were very similar to when before the patient started the medication. So her original lab results and the results after taking the medication were very similar. And this was an unexpected finding, and the healthcare provider contacted the lab to help investigate these results and to investigate further. And uh, as laboratorians, when we have biochemical results that don't match the clinical picture, we immediately start thinking about a potential interference or something in the patient sample that is affecting the test results, however, does not reflect the true clinical picture. And through different investigations in the lab, we found that this sample showed these unexpected thyroid hormone concentrations due to interference caused by excess biotin in the sample. So essentially, this patient, uh, because of this biotin interference in her sample, she did receive a misdiagnosis and was mistreated because of this interference. 
So thank you for starting off with that story. Um, so to dive a little bit deeper into this case and really understand how biotin um, could have caused this, can you explain what biotin is? Sure. So biotin is a water-soluble B vitamin, which is also known as vitamin B7, vitamin H, or coenzyme R. And our bodies use biotin as a coenzyme for different enzymatic reactions involved in metabolism, such as fatty acid synthesis and gluconeogenesis. And these enzymatic reactions really help contribute to maintaining normal health in our bodies. Great. So are there any medical conditions where biotin might be prescribed as a treatment? Yes. So there are a few conditions where high-dose biotin is an effective treatment. Uh, there are a number of metabolic disorders, such as biotinidase deficiency and holocarboxylase synthase deficiency, where essentially the body cannot use biotin effectively. And in these cases, biotin is administered at about 10,000 micrograms per day, and this helps restore the normal biotin function in the patient. There's also another exploratory treatment or use for biotin, and high-dose biotin treatment is also being explored as a treatment for progressive multiple sclerosis. And in these patients, those taking high-dose biotin had improvements in walking distance and visual acuity suggesting that the high-dose biotin is an effective treatment for both reversing the disease progression and reducing chronic disability in MS patients. And these patients are taking very high levels of biotin. So they're taking 100 milligrams of biotin three times per day, which gives them about 300 milligrams of biotin per day. And this is approximately 10,000 times the recommended daily intake. So in a healthy person, where are they getting the majority of their biotin from? So biotin occurs naturally in many different foods, including wheat germ, peanuts, whole grain cereals, uh, soya nuts, egg, salmon, and chicken. And in Western populations, the biotin intake from food or multivitamins is estimated to be approximately 35 to 70 micrograms per day. And this meets or exceeds the recommended daily intake of 30 micrograms per day. And as a result of our diet, uh, biotin deficiency is quite rare outside of those certain uh, medical conditions that I mentioned before. So thank you for that great background on biotin. Um, so it seems like biotin has been in the media a lot more lately. So why has there really been a growing public interest in biotin? Yes, so there has been a, a huge increase in uh, biotin recently, and that is because biotin is currently being marketed as essentially a supplement that can help improve the condition of one's hair, skin, and nails. So it's essentially being promoted as a beauty product. And for this use, these over-the-counter supplements are available at about 1,000 to 10,000 micrograms per capsule. And if you think about the recommended daily intake um, in, in these quantities, in these over-the-counter supplements, that's about 100 to 300 times the recommended daily intake of biotin. Are there benefits um, to taking more than the recommended daily intake? So the signs of biotin deficiency include skin rashes, hair loss, and brittle nails. And therefore, biotin supplementation is often marketed to improve hair, skin, and nail health. However, these claims are really supported by little evidence. Uh, there are a few studies that use biotin supplementation to treat brittle nails. Uh, however, in these studies, they found that although the nail health was improved in short term, 
these results weren't sustained over the long term, so there was no definitive conclusions made from these studies. There's also been studies looking at hair health. Um, however, there are only a couple of case reports in children where they found that high levels of biotin in children with a uh, medical condition that affected their hair did significantly improve their hair health after three to four months. There's also quite limited literature describing the effect of biotin on skin health. However, there are a couple of case, case reports that do describe improvements in rash or dermatitis. But I just want to highlight that these studies were really aimed at looking at the improvement of hair, skin, or nail health after biotin treatment in patients, both adults and children, that had certain medical conditions. And the effect of the biotin supplementation on hair, nail, and skin health in healthy individuals is yet to be determined. Okay, so it seems like there's still a little bit of controversy in regards to the benefits of biotin. Um, are there any known harms of taking biotin supplements? So currently, there is no evidence that biotin is toxic at high concentrations. Uh, there are some studies that did examine this, and they found that there was no adverse effects when patients took 10 to 50 milligrams per day. Um, and also, they did studies where patients with biotinidase deficiency took very high doses of biotin, including 200 milligrams per day, and they showed no sign of toxicity. Really, the main concern we have with high levels of biotin is that you may get an erroneous test result, and this can lead to misdiagnosis or incorrect patient management and treatment. And a great example of this is the patient I mentioned previously. So in that patient, lab results showed increased free thyroid or active hormones and decreased TSH or thyroid-stimulating uh, hormone. And in the presence of increased thyroid receptor antibodies, which is another marker included in the thyroid dysfunction test, this combination of markers are highly suspicious of Graves' disease. So in this case, the patient was diagnosed and treated for Graves' disease for a number of weeks before any interference was discovered. Um, also, cardiac troponin has been shown to be affected by biotin. So troponin is a marker of heart tissue damage and is used to help diagnose myocardial infarction or heart attack. And biotin interference can lead to decreased troponin levels, which would essentially rule out a heart attack and could result in mistreatment for the patient. And there was a case where this occurred, and although the patient was having a heart attack, he showed low, non-rising levels of troponin and was therefore misdiagnosed and did not receive the proper treatment. And this case actually led to a safety communication from the FDA regarding potential harms caused by biotin interference. And in the communication, they make specific recommendations for each of the consumers, healthcare providers, lab personnel, and test manufacturers to help mitigate the risk of biotin interference. Okay, so we know that there are several lab tests, but you're really mentioning ones such as thyroid or troponin. So what is specific about these tests that makes them specifically affected by biotin supplementation? So the tests that we are mainly concerned with are immunoassays. And biotin can really only have an effect on immunoassays. And these are tests that use an antibody to recognize a specific component of the patient's, uh, in the patient's sample. So there are a few detection systems used that help measure analytes in the blood. And one of the most widely used is called the biotin streptavidin system. 
So biotin and streptavidin, their um, interaction is one of the strongest known natural non-covalent interactions. Non-covalent meaning that they can break this interaction. However, it is really highly resistant to temperature and pH changes. Biotin is also quite small and therefore suitable for labeling and really useful in detection systems in clinical chemistry. And because of these characteristics, it really makes the biotin streptavidin interaction very useful for detecting certain analytes in patients' blood. I think it's also important to note that while we are most concerned with biotin interference in immunoassays, only immunoassays using the biotin streptavidin technology will be affected. So not all manufacturers use this technology in all assays. Some manufacturers do have the majority of their assays based on the biotin streptavidin system. Other manufacturers have some of their assays based on the biotin streptavidin system. And then other, as other manufacturers and other platforms have no, or they don't use this system at all. The assays that don't use the biotin streptavidin system, we would not be worried about biotin interference in these tests. I think it's also important to note that the biotin streptavidin technology and using the system is not something new, and that manufacturers have been using the system for years. In the past, there were no concerns with the high levels of biotin. It's really only recently where biotin is being advertised as a beauty product and the supplement where high doses can improve the look of hair, skin, and nails, that patients are taking high doses of biotin. And this is when we have the risk of biotin interference in lab testing. So for those manufacturers that do use the biotin streptavidin system um, that you mentioned, are they taking any specific steps to try to change their instrumentation or their uh, measurement process to make sure that their testing is not influenced by biotin? Yes. So recently, the AACC, or the American Association of Clinical Chemistry, published a guidance document on biotin interference in laboratory tests. And in this document, they provide a summary of studies that have investigated biotin interference. And they found and they really showed in this study or this guidance document that some assays are more susceptible to biotin interference than others. So in other words, the interference is called by small concentrations of biotin in some assays, such as the thyroid function test. However, other assays can tolerate higher concentrations of biotin before any interference is observed. And in this document, they also provided recommendations from the FDA for manufacturers of tests moving forward and how manufacturers can change their assays to reduce the chance of biotin interference. And their recommendation was that manufacturers use a minimum of 1,200 nanograms per mil of biotin to investigate potential interference and to ensure that the assays up to 1,200 nanograms per mil of biotin would not cause any significant changes in the test results. So moving forward, manufacturers will be expected to reformulate or change or update their assays that are sensitive to biotin to meet these criteria specified by the FDA recommendations. And this is actually started by a number of different manufacturers. And recently we had um, one of the reformulations for one of the immunoassays was introduced for TSH. And the new version or the reformulated version is less susceptible to biotin interference. And it does meet the recommendations that were and the criteria that were specified by the FDA.
So we really expect to see new formulations from other manufacturers in the future that are less sensitive to biotin. So we won't have to worry about biotin interference in, in these assays. So now we see what the companies um, are doing to hopefully reduce the impact biotin has on testing. Is there anything that patients can do? So if we have any listeners that are taking biotin supplements, is there anything they can do to make sure that their test results are not impacted? Okay, so for patients, we would recommend to talk to your doctor if you're currently taking biotin or are considering adding biotin or a supplement containing biotin to your diet. Know that biotin is found in multivitamins, including prenatal vitamins, and biotin supplements and supplements that are marketed as beauty products for the hair, skin, and nail growth. And patients should be aware that not all labels that are included on these supplements it's not obvious that biotin is included in there. So some some of these uh, products will have biotin, you know, written in big letters across the front and others will be in the fine print. So you really have to look at the labels on the products that you're using to make sure that there is or is not biotin in there. Also, biotin is a water-soluble and excreted in the urine. Um, it has a half-life of approximately two hours. So if you're taking over-the-counter biotin supplements, it is recommended that you abstain from taking biotin for at least 24 to 48 hours before you do your blood work. And if a patient sees a lab result that is unexpected and you do suspect biotin interference, we would recommend to please talk to your doctor or healthcare provider. Okay, so now that we know what the companies, um, what steps they're taking, what patients can do, um, now on the laboratory side, what are laboratories doing to ensure patient results are not affected by biotin or how are they catching them when they are affected by biotin? So some of the strategies and the likely strategy that can have the biggest impact is really um, from the lab is education and communication. So labs should reach out to both patients and healthcare providers to provide information on the risk of biotin interference in their lab. So patient education material, including posters and pamphlets, can be shared in collection center and clinics, um, in addition to a website that would be able to provide information about the assays that can be affected by biotin interference offered at that lab. For healthcare providers, direct communication consisting of newsletters or memos should really outline the assays that may be affected by biotin interference, so healthcare providers can be aware of this when interpreting patient results. In addition, this information can also be included in the lab's test information directory. In the communications with patients and healthcare providers, some labs may also want to include a recommendation as to how long to abstain from biotin supplements before phlebotomy. And this, this recommendation and, and the number of hours that you, that you abstain from biotin is somewhat laboratory dependent and can depend on the specific assays that are susceptible to biotin interference and offered in that lab and to the patient population that that lab serves. Another strategy used by labs can be to include a disclaimer on the lab requisition or the lab report that states that uh, high-dose biotin may interfere with laboratory tests. Of course, healthcare providers are encouraged to reach out to clinical chemists in the lab if they have a lab result that does not match the clinical picture or if they suspect biotin interference. So biotin interference can be challenging in the lab as we do not have a readily available assay for biotin. So we do really rely on our healthcare providers to communicate if they suspect analytical interference or if they get a result that they're not expecting. And this is why the education and communication are really the best strategies to help 
reduce the risk of biotin interference in the lab. So thank you very much, Nicole, for teaching us about the importance of biotin interference, as well as what companies, patients, and the lab can do to minimize the impact of biotin. So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Lab Report. So please let us know what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes. And you can email us any questions you have at epoc or epocc at cscc.ca. See you in the next episode.